Good morning. How is everyone? Patriots or Broncos? Broncos. We've got to have at least a little bit of Broncos um, represented. I kept getting asked this week by my students, what, what's your predictions for the weekend? And I was like, I have to say this from church affiliation, Broncos. We're going Broncos. Um, not necessarily, no, we won't hear. I was like, I'm not saying this is my prediction, but this is my rooting, okay? In solidarity, uh, we're going for the Broncos. Um, glad that you're here this morning. Uh, we're going to wrap up our You Asked For It series, uh, where you have um, thrown some questions my way, and, and, and I have uh, done my best to go through uh, most of them and, and to give you my outtake and maybe the church's outtake on uh, outlook on, on how we view certain issues and certain questions. And so we've tackled things like the authority of Scripture. You know, what does it mean to say that Scripture is true and, and binding on our lives? Um, we've tackled other questions that evade me right now. What else have we talked about? <laughs> it, was a, it was as impactful for you. <laughs> yeah, can you lose your salvation? Uh, and then world religions, yeah, was the first one we did. Um, so this morning, uh, we've got another great question um, that will wrap up our series for us. Um, I want to start, though, with a story. You know, one of the reasons I love church history is because you get to hear about sometimes some goofy things that Christians have done in the past, and uh, it kind of um, makes you look at your own situation in a different kind of light, a different lens. And so... Um, Right after the Reformation um, in Scotland, there was uh, these early Scottish Calvinists, okay? And they had a peculiar practice when it came to communion, when it came to celebrating um, Jesus' death for us uh, at the, the Lord's table. And so what they did was um, they would actually literally build a wire fence around the table, around the altar, um, and it would have a very small gate. Uh, and at the time of worship, where it was time for people to participate in communion, in order to get through the gate, you had to produce a metal coin that the church would give you uh, upon your baptism and completion of the catechism, which is memorizing <coughs> the answers to the, the questions that they give you. And the coin, of course, could be taken away if you weren't being a very good Christian, right? If you weren't in good standing with the church. Um, and the mental image that they gave me was just so intense, right? Uh, a, like a literal wire fence around communion. I mean, can you even imagine just the atmosphere, how things would change if we had constructed something like that behind me right now? Maybe a little bit of barbed wire at the top just to make sure your crawlers don't get over <laughs> I feel they're like, with our technology now, you wouldn't need the middle coin. It'd be more digital. There'd just be like a beeping sound. Uh, like, excuse me, sorry, step back. Uh, you are not holy enough to go into um, the Lord's Supper area uh, this Sunday. Um, we have no visitors uh, this morning, uh, or at least people who haven't um, been to the church a handful of times. And so, you know, by contrast to an actual fence built around the table, it's pretty easy to come to our table, Okay. Um, we don't require you to have a medallion. You don't have to insert, uh, enter through a little gate or have a secret password or anything like that. And the reason is because we practice something called open communion. Uh, and the question um, that we'll center in on today that was asked um, by a few different people was, 
why does the church practice open communion? Um, why do we practice communion the way that we do in such a way that it's pretty open, um, that's pretty open to all? Um, if you have um, paid attention really closely to the way that I introduce communion, um, normally I'll use a couple of the same phrases. Um, sometimes it depends on whether we have like a first-time guest with us or not. Uh, maybe I'll try to explain it a little bit more uh, so that they feel more comfortable. If I can see everyone in the room and they're all familiar to me, then maybe it'll be a little shorter and sweeter because we all know kind of the gist of it. Um, but I'll say something like, we practice at First Connex Church every week, open communion, which means that all are welcome at the table. You don't have to be a member of our church. Um, there's no other qualifications or things we need to know about you. Um, the only qualification for you to come to the table is... Um, if you want to come and worship Christ, if you want to come and meet him here at the table. Um, now this makes communion a very, very open act um, compared to certain other churches and especially historically, you know, wired fence. This kind of takes every fence down. Um, explicitly, it takes some fences down, right? You don't have to be a member of our church. Um, implicitly, it takes a lot of fences down, right? You'll notice... Um, there's nothing about how good of a Christian you are uh, or how good you've done in this past week if you are a Christian. Um, there's no questions as to whether even you are a Christian. Um, have you been baptized? Have you ever done this? Have you been confirmed in, in any sense or anything of this nature? Um, the invitation is so open that it's just a, in this moment, after this time of worship, has the Spirit prompted you to come and to come to the table. Um, it's worth talking about communion for a second, the practice of communion, um, and, and what happens during communion. Obviously, we come up and we remember uh, the body and blood of Jesus given for us when he was crucified. Um, there's lots of theories and ways of understanding what happens at the table and the significance of it. Um, the one that I come closest to is called spiritual presence, and the idea is um, since Jesus, since uh, I believe and still want to emphasize the fact that Jesus is still a human being, um, that he's still located in a physical body um, at God's right hand in heaven, um, that um, it makes it harder for me to swallow ideas or theories that would put Jesus' actual body and blood somehow at the table, right? Because I do think he has an actual body and blood, but it's not here with us, right? So instead, I think the Spirit somehow mysteriously makes Christ present to us um, during the action of communion. And it uh, brings our eyes and hearts and souls up to Christ where he is, ascended at the right hand near the Father. And we have a meeting with him. This is where the word communion comes into play. In the scriptures in 1 Corinthians 10, it's, it says when we partake in the body and the blood, uh, we are having a communion or koinonia with Jesus. Um, a fellowship. Uh, we're having a meal where we come into contact with him. Um, that's where this phrase communion comes from. Some prefer the phrase Lord's Supper, uh, which refers to the institution of this practice um, right before Jesus was crucified as he had the Passover meal with his disciples. Sometimes you might hear the word the Eucharist um, described to um, indicate this practice. It's one of my favorite ways of indicating it. Um, Eucharisto just means to give thanks in Greek, and so because Jesus gave thanks for the bread, and because we give thanks as we remember his sacrifice for us, sometimes it's called the Eucharist. Um, 
Um, and so at communion, Christians throughout all ages uh, and all denominations and all kinds of Christians celebrate communion. Um, but there have been various fences and barriers, both literal and metaphorical, that have been built up around communion, about who is able to participate in communion and who's not able to participate in communion. Um, and there's really two primary ways to understand it. Um, the first is um, what we call closed communion. Okay, This is um, when not everybody is welcome to the table, that there's uh, some stricter fences and barriers around the table. A lot of times communion is closed in certain churches or certain groups, um, to people who are not good Christians. Um, so if you have, maybe you are a Christian, but you've committed a certain type of sin, um, you're not welcome at the table. Now, it's pretty hard to really micromanage the holiness level of people's lives. Um, you know, I couldn't do it with the 40 of us if I tried, much less if you had a bigger church, right, of 100, 200, 500, 1,000 um, so what usually gets up uh, ends up happening is you pick one or two big sins that everyone would know about you, um, and you close those people out from communion. For instance, and this happens in Sugarland, um, you have churches who will not allow people who have been divorced to come and participate in communion. We've had more than one um, couple come to the church uh, and find FC3 uh, a welcoming family. Um, because of the simple fact that they were welcome at communion even though they had been divorced. And so sometimes that's the fence that's built up. Um, you have to be a certain, you have to meet a certain holiness um, quotient uh, as a Christian in order to come. Sometimes you have to be a member of the denomination or the group. Um, so very famously Catholics, right? You have to be a confirmed Catholic. Um, you don't necessarily have to belong to that Catholic church, but you have to be in that group to come and take communion. Um, and then sometimes, even stricter, you have to be a member of that congregation. Um, it doesn't matter if you're a Christian or even a member of the denomination. You have to be a member of this congregation. You have to be on our membership rolls and have done whatever we wanted you to do uh, to confirm that in order to come and take communion. Those are typically different fences built up for closed communion. On the other hand, you have open communion. Okay. Um, the most common form of open communion is openness to all Christians to come and to celebrate. Uh, I would, and we do at FCQ, take it a step further um, based on what we'll see in the scriptures. Um, and you can tell this by the very deliberate way I phrase the invitation to communion. Um, we really do think communion is open to everybody, to all people, um, which would include non-believers. Um, for non-believers, communion would function, in a sense, as like an altar call. Um, if you feel prompted by the Spirit to come and worship and meet and feel the love of Christ and dedicate yourself to Him, what better thing to do than come up to the table and participate? Um, for wayward believers, uh, for believers who maybe have backslidden, um, this is a time perhaps of rededication where you come and you remember who you really are and who you belong to and united with and what your mission is in the world. Um, for faithful Christians, communion is a time of celebration uh, of Jesus' death for you and participation um, with his life in you and then through you. Um, and so this is how we practice communion here at First Colony Christian Church. Of course, though, the real question for this morning is why? 
Okay? So why do we practice open communion? Why do we practice this type of open communion? Why do we not practice closed communion? Why do we not make the fence a little bit stricter? Um, the answer is succinctly because we believe that this type of invitation is in line, is continuing with um, the ministry of Jesus and the example that he has set for us and for even his own meals um, during his ministry. And so if you would flip with me to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2, verse 13. We'll look at two passages here this morning. First, Mark 2. Again, the headline, why do we practice open communion, is because we believe communion is an extension of Jesus' table fellowship ministry um, in his gospel. So it's an ongoing table fellowship ministry that he began when he was incarnated and uh, had his ministry. Jesus was very famous for um, having uh, a ministry of eating um, with people. And his ministry of eating with people was very controversial um, for lots of different reasons. Uh, and it's this table fellowship ministry, this very radical, controversial table fellowship um, that is very characteristic of Jesus' ministry. It's one of the hallmarks of his ministry. Um, and it sets an example for us to understand the Lord's Supper, his institution of it. Um, and then again, the ongoing practice of it by Christians. So we'll start in Mark 2. Um, in the Gospels, of course, not every story that happened to Jesus or was true about Jesus gets recorded, okay? So you get some foundational stories that serve to tell us about the characteristics of Jesus' ministry. And Mark 2 is one of these stories, okay? Um, I think this is something that we are to conclude based on this and numerous other stories in the Gospels was a regular part of the life of Jesus, of what would happen as he traveled from town to town. So Jesus goes out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but to call the sinners. There's actually a church called St. Gregory's um, that has a... Um, very progressive theology and practice of open communion and hospitality and justice. And they had an expensive altar built. Um, it was very interesting to me. Um, and it's inscribed with quotations. And on the very front of the altar inscribed is in Greek from this passage, um, who is this man who welcomes sinners and eats with them? The words of the accuser, uh, the accusers. Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Which I think would be such an interesting thing to see as you would come to the table every week in worship. One, as a reminder of who Jesus invites to his table. And then two, why you're being invited to the table. Because you were a tax collector and sinner. You were once an enemy of God. 
and in Christ's love, you were invited into a relationship with him. Um, they also have um, described on it, uh, inscribed on the other side, the words of a 7th century mystic uh, named Isaac of Nineveh. Um, and the quote is this, did, our, did not our Lord share his table with tax collectors and harlots? So do not distinguish between worthy and unworthy. All must be equal for you to love and serve. Um, Jesus has this table fellowship ministry um, and it's scandalous. Tax collectors and sinners, these are not just people who drink a little too much or who cuss. Um, these are the most hated of hated people in first century Jewish life. Jesus could not have picked more morally reprehensible people to associate with. Um, eating for us also is much more of a casual type thing. Um, eating in the first century is an identity marker. You are who you eat with. Um, and Jesus... Um, intentionally, constantly went out of his way and at his table, who was invited? The tax collectors and the sinners and the prostitutes. Uh, I would take you through a mental activity right now. Think of one of the most morally reprehensible people that you can imagine. Um, It might be a hypothetical person. You might actually have a name to this person and a face that you can think of. Someone who makes you angry because of their actions, who does wrong. Someone who brings disgust into your, your stomach and into your gut when you think about them and think about their life and their lifestyle. This is who the tax collectors and sinners would be. And then walk through this activity. Feel that anger and disgust and feel that, I mean, very strong and... I mean, don't hide it, right? They're not welcome at your home. Um, They're not welcome to conversation with you. Um, This is the worst of the worst. Um, And then imagine, perhaps, how Jesus might feel about that person. Does Jesus hate them? Does Jesus want to see them killed? Is Jesus angry or disgusted at them, towards them? Is Jesus disappointed in them? Does Jesus love them? Does Jesus want to see them transformed? Live a new, better life? How patient is he in his willingness to see them transformed? A week? A day? Years? A life? Would Jesus be willing to eat a meal with that person? And then what would his posture and his attitude be during that meal. Here's the interesting thing about Jesus' table fellowship ministry as he eats with these outsiders and sinners is that he has this very attractive quality to him, to some of the worst of the worst of his society. Um, and, and that attractiveness would not have happened if Jesus is eating with them while thumbing his nose up at their lives and lifestyles. Does that make sense? Um, Jesus is not sitting across the table um, like gritting his teeth. Like, oh, I would rather punch you, but I'm going to eat with you because I know I'm supposed to love you. Jesus seems to really enjoy quality time with these people. And they, in return, seem to really enjoy quality time with him. In another very classic passage of Jesus' table ministry, we turn to Luke chapter 19. In Luke chapter 19, 
Um, very famous passage. We get the very classic song. This is when Jesus goes and eats with Zacchaeus. He was a wee little man. And that's it. Um, Luke 19, verse 1. He entered Jericho and was passing through. Behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. So not just a tax collector. He was on the top of the totem pole. He was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to that place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. When they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Again, this accusation. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham, where the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Again, a phrase. Who needs the physician, not the healthy, but the sick? Why has Jesus come? Not to seek and save that which is already found, but to seek and save the lost, the chief task after Zacchaeus. He lodges with him, which means he's probably eating more than one meal with him. He's spending time in his house. Again, one of the worries um, of all cultures is that if you associate with the wrong people, it will give you a bad reputation and or rub off on you wrongly. Um, Jesus seems to think this is a very bad philosophy of life. Um, Jesus seems to think holiness is more powerful and more contagious than sin is. Um, and so you see this with Zacchaeus, right? Jesus goes and lodges in Zacchaeus' house, and Jesus doesn't emerge more of a smug, tax collector-friendly type of person. Zacchaeus emerges as a transformed person. This is what happens when one is invited to meet and spend time with and have an encounter with um, the living Christ. Um, Zacchaeus um, is welcomed at Jesus' table, uh, and it's there transformed um, by this meeting with um, the Lord. Now, the gospel narratives all reach the story of the Last Supper, the institution of this Passover meal, um, with a set of images about meals and eating implanted in the minds of their readers. Images like the ones that we just read, of Levi and the tax collectors and sinners, of um, prostitutes eating with Jesus, of Zacchaeus. Um, and what we would know while we get to the end of the Gospels and get to this last meal with Jesus and his disciples before he's betrayed, is that Jesus, when he ate, when he was the host of a table, he ate with all sorts of people. Sinners and outsiders included, as well as his followers. We know that he was indifferent to rules about proper occasions or formulas for eating. There were often controversies about hand washing and things of that nature. Jesus didn't seem to care about anyone's rules about how and when you were supposed to eat, and especially who uh, you were supposed to eat with. We know that Jesus somehow could feed multitudes of strangers, um, so that no one who would come to listen to his words went away hungry. Um, sometimes Jesus' table fellowship ministry included 5,000 people. Not only at that point would you not be able to regulate who was there, who was worthy to be there or not, um, but Jesus had this miraculous way of always feeding the people who came to meet with him. 
no matter how many, or no matter how strange or far away. And I think these all serve, these meals serve as the proper context when we think about the Last Supper, when we think about the Lord's Supper, when we think about um, the Eucharist. In fact, remember that at the Last Supper, um, one was present, uh, whose presence I think is very important for the whole institution of the Eucharist, of communion. Judas the betrayer. And at the Lord's Supper, Jesus does not say, okay, it's time for everyone to participate in this meal, except for Judas, because you're a sinner, and you're not one of us, and you're going to betray me. Um, Jesus passes the bread to Judas, and he passes the cup to Judas. And we're told from the Gospels, Jesus is very aware of who Judas is and what Judas will do, and yet he still includes him in his meal. Very characteristic of Jesus. All are welcome at the table. And even his enemies, even the one who would lead to his death, is ruthlessly pursued with kindness and welcome to the very bitter end. And so we practice open communion because it's an extension of the way that Jesus ate with others and started his ministry of um, communion. Um, William Placker um, says this, Bill Placker, he says, uh, a meal shared by Jesus, it seems, is a place where just about anyone might be found, except those too proud or fussy to join the company. Some may exclude themselves, but Jesus excludes no one. He goes on to say, if Christ is present somehow in the sacrament, and the table around which the people gather is Christ's table. In the face of the attitudes that the Gospels portray of Jesus, it is not for us to set fussy limits about who may come or how they may come. This is an important theological point. The, the Lord's Supper is the Lord's Supper. The moment we put any fence around it, it becomes our supper. If you have to be a member of FC Cubed, now it's the table of FC Cubed. If you have to be a member of a denomination, if you have to be this or that, you've now restricted it and taken ownership over it. If Jesus is truly the host of the table, then the invite is up to him. The welcome is up to him. Um, an important modern theologian, uh, Jürgen Moltmann, says this, The Lord's Supper takes place on the basis of an invitation which is as open as the outstretched arms of Christ on the cross. Because he died for the reconciliation of, quote, the world, from the scriptures, the world is invited to reconciliation at the supper. It is not the openness of the invitation, it is the restrictive measures of the churches which will have to be justified before the face of the crucified Jesus. And who can justify that in his sight? Because in light of the fact that Christ has died for all and welcomes all, and consistently welcomed all during his ministry. Um, the churches who will need to worry about justifying their practice of communion will not be the ones who radically and inclusively welcome all. It will be the ones who put restrictions on it. These are the ones Jesus might say, look, it was my table. And as open as my arms were on the cross, it was the invitation to the meal with me. And so how dare you turn away somebody? 
How dare you leave someone behind? John Calvin says this, and Calvin is known for being kind of fussy about certain things that happen and how they should happen in the church setting. But when it comes to communion, he's, I think, large known point. He says, those who think it's sacrilege to partake the Lord's Supper um, with the wicked are in this more rigid than Jesus himself or the Apostle Paul. For when Paul exhorts us to pure and holy communion, he doesn't require that we should examine others or that everyone should examine the whole church, but that each man should examine himself. Now he's referring to one of the biggest passages that would form an argument against open communion. Then it comes from 1 Corinthians 11. Um, where Paul is very upset with the Corinthians about the way they've been doing communion and warns them that there is going to be judgment, continued judgment, coming their way about um, their practice of communion. And in so doing, he tells them that they need to discern the body correctly, that they need to examine themselves, that they need to do communion in a manner that is worthy. Um, And so... uh, 1 Corinthians 11, I think, is one of those misinterpreted passages, especially when it comes to communion. But it's often taken um, to be used as an excuse to build up a fence or a barrier, right? Um, so only worthy people should come to the table. When in fact, the passage itself, if you read it carefully, it says um, what needs to be worthy is not the people who come to the table, but the way the table is handled altogether. Um, it says that one should examine oneself, right? It's often misinterpreted to say that we should examine each other. That somehow I should examine you to see whether you should come to the table or not. Um, or the church should examine people. No, it's a examine yourself. And then the examining yourself is not your level of sinfulness or holiness or anything of that nature. The whole passage in 1 Corinthians 11, from beginning to end, the context is division within the church. Um, In particular, the rich people were shaming and leaving out the poor people at the Lord's Supper. And Paul says this is the most ironic of ironies. That the Lord's Supper, meant for all, has become something you use to shame and humiliate people who are different from you. And he says the very practice of communion, the welcomeness of it, stands in judgment against you. And he mentions some very severe judgments, that some are weak or sick or have even died because they have been practicing communion in this way. Um, and so for some, close communion is not this, they're not doing it because they're trying to be exclusive and trying to keep people away from Christ. For a lot of, of churches that practice close communion, their intentions are good. They're trying to protect someone um, from coming and doing these things that um, Paul said, major judgment will come upon you for uh, if you do. Um, But again, I think it's just largely misinterpretation. Um, Paul uh, is making the point that if you use the unity table, the table that says Christ died for you, to table, and if you turn it into the you don't belong table, the table itself stands in judgment against you. The whole practice stands in judgment against you. And the judgment he speaks of is the judgment given to believers. Um, he doesn't say to warn unbelievers of a judgment about coming to the table or anything of that nature. Um, he says, don't come to the table if you're using the table to separate and divide and exclude others. Um, ironically, I think the point of First Corinthians 11 is actually 
one of the strongest arguments in favor of an open um, practice of communion. Um, at this meal, John Calvin says, All are invited, no matter class or race or gender. All come as equals, for Jesus is the host. That the rich or the barbarian come among us, whoever, and inasmuch as they are human, they come as our brother and our sister and our neighbor. Calvin says, I'm nervous about all those who insist that only the pure or the purge of sin can come to the Lord's table. Such a dogma would debar all who ever were or are on the earth from the use of the sacrament. I'm equally nervous about any offenses that we build up. And so this is why we practice open communion. It's an extension of Jesus' attitude um, of welcome as the host of his table. Um, it also lines up perfectly with the message of the gospel, the good news that God in his love has sent his son so that all might be reconciled to him. Um, and as his arms are outstretched, so is his invitation. Um, so we practice open communion. We practice it every week. Um, this is uh, an important aspect of communion to us. Um, so in fact, if, if you read Christianity Today or keep up with blog articles or anything online, you'll see that more and more churches are moving to practicing communion more regularly. Um, so churches that historically practice it once a quarter are now doing it monthly. Churches that have done it monthly are now doing it weekly, those sorts of things. When I first came to First Colony uh, Christian Church, it was my first experience with a weekly practice of communion. Uh, and immediately what came up in my mind was what I was brought up with, um, which was if you do something every week, doesn't it get old? Right? I mean, will not it become rote? will not it become this just dead ritual? Um, now, the first thing that's kind of funny about the whole argument is it's never used for anything else. So, like, worship songs or preaching or, like, anything else, right? <laughs> Praying, reading your Bible. Because the argument could equally be used for all of this. You should probably only pray once a quarter, right? Because otherwise, it just turns into this dead ritual that you do, right? Maybe we should only preach, like, twice a year. Okay, would be really something you look forward to. Be something special and unique. Um, if I can't put together a good sermon in six months, there's no shot at all. Uh, um, so yeah, I mean the the logic's never extended anywhere else other than communion. And then beyond that, if we see communion as in some sense a meeting and a fellowship with the risen Christ, with a a risen person, it's not a memorial service that we're a part of, then communion, by definition, can't get old. If you're meeting with someone who's alive, it is always new, and it's always refreshing. Just like any living relationship. Um, by, its, by its very nature, it cannot become a, a rote ritual where other things perhaps might be able to. Um, Every week, communion is also seemingly um, the tradition of the earliest Christians. In Acts 2.42, it's mentioned as one of the elements that constitutes Christians gathering every um, first day of the week, Sunday, the day the Lord rose. In 27, it's described again as what Christians do on the first day of the week. They meet to break the bread. Um, in the Didica, an early Christian document, 100 AD, again, we're told that early Christians habitually meet once a week to break the bread. Justin Martyr, in a letter in 150 AD, says this again. It would seem that weekly communion is the norm and not the exception. All pastors that I've ever talked to who um, practice uh, 
communion other than weekly, say monthly or quarterly, um, always say it in, in the tone of lament that we would if we could, if we thought it was possible. So usually it's a logistical thing or a denominational thing that keeps them from doing it. Um, you can imagine if you've got 5,000 people, that it might be a logistical nightmare to try to somehow get communion for everyone. Another important part of our practice of communion is not only is it every week, but it is a communal activity. Um, you get communion from the church, and you take communion with the church. Um, it's something we participate together as uh, a body. Um, it's something that we can't do in isolation. Um, we purposely do not hand out individual McDonald's-sized cups and saran-wrapped um, pieces as if somehow you could give communion to yourself, right? Um, this is something that um, I think I've mentioned before, you know, before First Colony, that's the only kind of communion I was used to, um, was people would pass around the plate, and I'd take my little piece out, and my little piece out, and I'd do it kind of with everyone else. But for the most part, it was a me and Jesus type moment, right? But First Colony, you have to be kind of close to someone else's face, and they're talking to you while it's happening, uh, and you're receiving it from somebody else. Um, I was at a retreat once, um, and Chris and I were both there, and, and they wanted to do communion. They had set up to go get these individualized pieces of communion, and we were in line. And as I was doing that, something within me was just like, everything about this is wrong. Like, I can't serve myself communion. And I never thought it out before. No one had ever talked to me about this idea. It was the practice of receiving communion every Sunday that had reinforced in my mind that this is how it should be. It's a community thing. And so Chris and I kind of looked at each other and were like, hey, will you give me communion and I'll give you communion? And we just kind of exchanged it real fast. And really, it feels a lot better. Right? That just feels more normal. Um, I mean, it's not something I do in isolation, do by myself. Um, and so, um, for the question, again, of why we practice open communion, we do it as an extension of Jesus' ministry uh, and his um, example of radical hospitality. We do it um, in hopes that all, no matter what their background or experience might be, um, might have a real encounter at the table with the love of Christ. Um, symbolized his death, his body and blood and the bread and the, and the juice um, that they might be transformed um, and, and we do so um, in continuation with the early Christians um, and, and also in continuation with what we perceive to be the heart of the gospel which is the good news um, that God has sent his son so that all may be saved um, and that even to this very day, his ministry is ongoing, his table is open, and uh, he is seeking and saving the lost. Um, which pair with me? Father, we thank you for um, the scriptures that you've given us. We thank you for um, the person of your son, for the examples that he set for us for the many ways that his examples